Hi, welcome to Data Basic, the Warwick Data Science Society podcast, aimed at making data science simple and accessible. For our episode today, we have Homer Yaku, the head of fraud at PayUK, one of UK's leading payment processors. This episode is being hosted by Alexandro, the co-president of the Warwick Data Science Society, and Iria, the podcast lead. Stay tuned into this gripping episode as we explore and unravel the world of fraud analytics. Hi, hi, Humaira. Welcome to Data Basic, the Warwick Data Science Society podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time out to be part of our episode today on fighting financial fraud with data science. Uh, Alexandro and I are extremely excited to host you today. Hi, guys. Um, I'm really excited to be a part of Data Basic. Um, so I'm really glad um, you both reached out to me um, to take and be a part of this. Um, and I'm really excited for the conversations that's, that's upcoming. I'm hoping the listeners um, for this podcast find it as interesting as I do in the topic of fraud. Yeah, right. Thank you so much, Mara, again. So uh, if I could start, uh, could you give us a background about yourself, uh, maybe uh, your career trajectory and uh, in particular, what, what are you? Why are you interested in in uh, in this topic? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start off with um, how I landed where where I am right now. Um, so I done both my undergrad and my masters um, in information management for business at UCL. Um, I then um, was selected for the graduate scheme at Barclays. Um, so it was a two year grad program and it had six month rotations. So I spent a little bit of time in mobile banking and the digital team within Barclays, spent a little bit of time in Barclays Card, um, and then I spent some time in the fraud team, which forms part of the wider big data team. Um, and then as soon as I finished my graduate scheme, I rolled off into the big data team. So I think my actual love for fraud analytics um, starts off from my background in um, big data. So we'll go on to the definitions around the types of fraud that exists within within our communities. Uh, but the largest type of fraud is APP scams, which is essentially it stands for authorized push payment. And what is it? Because authorized push, push payment, that's largely held on the rails for faster payment service. Now, those faster payments are processed by pay.uk. So we've had regulators, we've had the banks, we've had a lot of different institutions coming to us and asking us, as the payments operator, what are you doing to combat fraud? And I think just earlier this year, UK Finance, so they are the voice of 300 plus banks um, across the globe. They came and, and they've now classed APP scams as a national um, security threat. So we're losing, last year in 2021, we lost 1.3 billion in fraud and in scams, that's a massive amount. So if we go to think about how much money banks or any institution spends in, in investing in their products that they might have, in resources, 1.3 billion, it amounts to a lot. And if you go to think about it, these are losses by every single bank. So it counts towards the fraud loss lines. And that's money more often than not is usually unaccounted for. So it's they will reimburse their customer in in almost half of the scenarios but there is no one to then reimburse them so they'll track they'll try to track down that money as much as they can how successful they are there's a very small percentage of banks that are then able to actually be reimbursed for the payout that they just made for their customer so it's a whole web um, of things that we are we are speaking about um, quick question on what is the distinction between financial fraud and financial crime if you can help us understand that 
Yeah. So when we say financial crime, um, for me, it's on a much larger scale. Um, so we're talking about terrorist financing groups. We're talking about organized finance um, and for organized crimes. We're also talking about um, a lot of the time anti-money laundering. Um, we're talking about, like I mentioned, bribery and corruption. Um, a lot of these exist within P PEPs, so politically exposed people. Um, and we're also talking about, like I mentioned, terrorist financing, um, insider dealing or market abuse. However, when we're talking about fraud, um, and we'll run through the different types of frauds that exist, but usually frauds are for me consumer to consumer. So they're the actual common man, um, so to speak, um, that is trading, um, not living normal lives, earning normal wages, um, but then being victimized. Um, and that either comes in two parts. It's it's essentially, or do, what do we define as fraud? It's essentially stealing or deceiving um, for personal gain. So it could be somebody using um, and stealing your identity. So again, coming to identity, identity theft, um, which is also known as unauthorized fraud, essentially. So anything that that essentially has card details stolen, your card number, cardholder account name, date of birth, address, um, those can be stolen from online databases. I'm sure you probably have already heard of it, but through emails, through through um, through internet scams, um, through phone scams, um, and essentially this is what we call card not present fraud. So. The other type of um, scam that exists is also um, identity theft, like we mentioned. So it's committing fraudulent applications in someone else's name um, and then having a new credit card without that person knowing. Um, another type is the authorised push payment. And that is probably where we are saying um, there's a national security threat. So the number of 1.3 billion lost, um, a lot of it is for the um, APP scams. And essentially, this is the majority of the scams, um, especially now, where two years ago, card fraud was at its peak. It was in at the beginning of 2021 that APP scams superseded card fraud. And I think that's where the industry became super worried about where we are going. Um, and it all it all almost triggered after COVID because there was this massive shift of people going into branches and using cash for payments and then suddenly being forced to be at home um, within COVID with branches closed and moving to digital means of making payments. What then happened was it gave rise to authorised payment fraud. So scammers and scammers and fraudsters are very good in changing their tactics. Fraud is a very volatile environment. What these scammers have now started to do is essentially victimise people and manipulate them into making real-time payments to themselves. But we have to also probably know that they have a lot longer to build a rapport with the customer than the banks do. So even if banks right now have big warning signs to say, beware, make sure this is not a scam, um, they'll have a warning sign just before you make the payment to say, are you being manipulated into making this scam? Is there somebody else that's um, directing you to make a scam? Are you sure you know the person that you are paying? Um, have you checked the socket account details? Um, and essentially, the scammers use this is what we call socially engineering um, the victims. So it could yeah. be. Yeah, I actually but, wanted to bring that up. Yeah. Yes. So there's a few there's a few um, examples of being socially engineered. One of them is impersonation scams. I quickly wanted to go through what those scams look like because 
a lot of us might have even been susceptible to those scams, but not even know because they seem so real. Um, and then other parts of, you know, social, socially engineered is investment scams and purchase scams. Um, it can also be romance scams. So I don't know how many of you have watched um, Tinder Swindler, but it's one of my favorite movies and I absolutely love the way it's being conducted. Um, and, it's, and it's a real life example of what's happening currently. Um, there are so many cases of people being romantically scammed on Tinder and they're not small amounts like 10, 20 dollars, 10, 20 pounds. They're in the realm of a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred thousand pounds. Oh, wow. And, and it's done over the course of months. So they'll start over in the app, build a relationship, move over to WhatsApp. And that's where and that's where the fraudster becomes more active in actually scamming now because they've spent three months. It could be three months to build a trust. And essentially you feel like I am in love. So obviously you're going to trust the person you're speaking to and you've gotten to know more than your bank that you don't speak to every day. You don't FaceTime. You don't share a connection with. Um, and the scammers do this in a very, very intelligent way. So it could be to say, hey, I am trading on a trading platform. They would present all of these evidences to say, I've invested a grand and I've got 100 grand back. Trust me with your money. Or you can just put your own money into this platform. I'm also using um, a manager to manage my finances. You can also use the same person. Little do, do the victims obviously know that this is completely um, planned. It's pre-planned from before. They already have created this app themselves. They've created the so-called platform um, for trading, and even their fraud and, and even their finance manager is, is someone they already know, um, who is probably doing this on Tinder to somebody else at the same time. So the goal of the scam is to get you to voluntarily send um, a payment to the scammers. Um, and it just goes to show that it's so easy to win the trust of people nowadays because we have to understand that people are also quite vulnerable. They, we've just gone through a pandemic that we haven't been through before in our lives. So I think everyone's in a, in a vulnerable state of mind um, and the forces are taking advantage of it. And what Pay.UK is trying to do is it's trying to figure out what it can do from all three perspectives. So we've got some um, propositions that are ongoing from a pre-transaction perspective. So even before the customer is, um, is confirming the payment and pressing the pay now button, um, what can we do to stop that? What we're doing is we're working with UK Finance. Um, so the body that is essentially representing 300 plus banks um, and what we're doing is we're trying to create a peer-to-peer -peer API. So probably one of the safest forms of transferring data from the sending and the receiving bank. Um, so we've already done a proof of concept and it's had a lot of valuable outcomes. One of them, so the way we measure fraud detection is via um, the VDR. So it's the value detection rate. Um, and also the FPR, which is the false positive rate. So essentially, how much of the fraudulent value can you detect, um, even before the customer then reports it as fraud? Um, and then the FPR is essentially the false positive rate. So how many alerts and how many genuine customers do we need to impact before we find that one fraud? Um, and I think the industry standard for the false positive rate is something like 20 to 1. So after a bank sends out 20 alerts, one of them is the right alert to the right victim um, that can stop a fraud um, and essentially then it will resu result in either the payment being referred um, or declined um, and so what we are trying to do is 
the pre-transaction state is sending data and information. So things like the customer's profile, um, how long has the customer been with you um, within the bank? Um, is it a new customer? Do they usually send this type of transfer amount? Um, is this the usual time that they do this, this payment? And it's essentially um, empowering both the sending and the receiving bank to make a decision on how risky that payment looks. So that's pre-transaction. Um, so in my head, it's almost like three towers. We've got some work pre-transaction, then we've got at the time of transaction. That's probably the most important one. And then we've got post-transaction. So pre-transaction is something we're calling enhanced fraud data, which is the exchange between sending and receiving banks via, via an API. Um, and then we've got at the time of transaction. So bearing in mind faster payments and APP scams are usually done in real time, we need to make sure that the data also flows in real time. The banks need to be able to stop the payment in real time. So the speed of how the data is transferred from one entity to another is critical to being able to stop that payment in the first place. So what we're doing is at the time of transaction, we're um, teaming up with fraud prevention experts. We don't have all the expertise in-house. And essentially, these are your machine learning experts, which are building machine learning models. So they're feeding in these transactions. They're overlaying it with a whole load of other data to enrich the transactions. Um, and they're learning behaviors. So it could be anything from unusual behaviors from the customer, it could be um, customer profile, um, so the geolocation, the device ID information. It could also be behavioral insights as well. So we're talking about analyzing human patterns, um, things like at the time of transaction, their mouse activity, so your speed, your movement patterns, um, keystrokes, um, your touchscreen behavior, so how quickly you moved from each of the fields that you were filling in, um, how quickly you could input the transaction amount or beneficiary details, um, and it's comparing that to whatever they have built for that customer profile using their historical behaviors. Um, so for example, if I'm working a nine to five job, it's very likely, unlikely, sorry, I'd be awake at 3 a.m. making a payment on a working day. So it's almost trying to detect this anomaly type of behaviors. And um, some of some of the banks systems um, and fraud engines are really um, advanced. So they will also start using biometric security. So things like voice recognition, um, facial recognition, iris recognition. Um, and I think technology at the moment is just becoming more and more complex um, and for the right means. Um, and it's how do we detect the best use of technology for fraud prevention. And like I keep saying as well, I think this technology, fraud engines, uh, machine learning models, they're only as good as the data that you put in, but they can only help you detect more fraud. It's then up to the rules that the banks, fraud analytics um, teams um, and fraud agents, it's the rules that they actually apply within the fraud engines, which will then help prevent. So unless you're not referring um, a payment or essentially declining a payment, you're not preventing that fraud. So we can give as much data to the fraud engines that we want, but it's the change in the rules um, and how much the banks are willing to decline a payment, even though I know it will probably have an impact to genuine customers and the, the customer journey, the payment journey, um, which we really do not want to impact because we don't want then 
for us to impact 50% of payments, for example, and then your complaints line is is increasing in the number of calls. Um, so it's it's a really um, tricky place to be in, um, and we need to be really careful in um, what we put out there um, and how we use what's given to us as well. But we can share data, and the more we share the data, we can track the stolen money. Um, and it's a call for everybody to be part of the same initiative. We can't have anyone working in silos. It just won't work, especially because a scam can originate from a social media platform like Facebook or um, Twitter. But it's actually done then via the banks. Um, and similarly, the scammer gains the trust of the victim via a telecommunication method. So it's via WhatsApp or it's via a phone call, um, it's via FaceTime. So it's a cross-sector bid. So it's data sharing across all sectors. You've got your social media, you've got telcos, you've got crypto asset firms, you've got ourselves, payment system operators. And unless we don't have this common bureau um, or common data sharing mechanism, um, we won't be able to get ahead of the fraudsters. Um, so it's it's actually just yesterday um, in The Guardian, it was printed that there's um, a lady called Tulip Siddiq, um, I think the name was, and she works for, she's an MP on behalf of the Labour Party. And she was calling for a national fraud strategy um, because obviously everyone knows on the 1.3 billion loss um, in 2021. Um, and essentially it's, how do we get a single dedicated national fraud strategy that everyone follows, that everyone believes in? Um, and it's placing data sharing agreements. Um, and I think this is where we're not able to get to right now. We're not able to have trust to share the data because there is a wider risk of data leakage, data breaches. Um, and even though, you know, these forces are stealing the money from hardworking families um, like yours and mine, it's how do we make sure that the data that's being shared it's got the backing of the entire industry, um, all our regulators. We need law enforcement behind us. We need the first, third sectors. We need courts because obviously if it doesn't work or, you know, breaches are taking place um, or even if the reinvestment policy is rolled out and there are some banks or financial institutions that are not keeping to it, what happens? What, what does the law enforcement looks like will be the second question. Um, recently, we were talking to the likes of Cyphers. Um, so they hold a national and an international fraud database. So the banks, um, the majority of banks anyway, are signed up to Cyphers. And whenever they see um, a flagged account or a money mule, they put these details on that national fraud database. So if a high value payment or a very risky payment is being uh, made, the banks are at their disposable to go and check that national fraud database. So we do have some form or we do have some leverage currently in place. We've got um, Hunter that's born by Experian. Um, we've got another company called Synectix that has a very similar database called um, Sira. Um, so the banks are using what they can at the moment, but I feel like they're using it in silos. So they're using it within their fraud systems um, for their own customers. Um, but what we're kind of missing out on is more likely than not, the sending bank is not always the receiving bank of the payment. So that's why we now we need to work across banks and we need to work across sectors. Um, if we work, if we work to a destination where if a fraudster is calling up an individual 
and then within an hour, because like I mentioned, it's, it's usually them being in a form of panic. Within an hour, within half an hour, them logging onto their internet banking or their mobile banking and trying to make a large payment. That's not usually what their behavior looks like. Um, the bank can associate a very a very high risk score to that type of behavior. Um, and then put a, it's a simple rule that they put into the fraud engine to say we want to um, defer that payment or we want to reject that payment. So it seems really simple, but it is essentially um, it will only be it will only be able to work if we're sharing this data across um, telecommunications, um, across law enforcement, across metropolitan police. Um, you've got social media sites, um, and it's quite sad because. A lot of the victims um, spend a lot of time on on these social media platforms um, and they listen to scammers that exist um, and are then making these TikTok videos. So they're getting a lot of recommendations, um, a lot of their hints and tips from TikTok videos. Um, so it's a little yeah. bit sad. We're working in an era where they're taking less less hints, um, less recommendations from their banks as governing bodies, um, but more from people that they follow, so your influences on, on Instagram. Um, um, one of the questions would be, because um, I know WhatsApp has end-to-end -end encryption, how are you even considering tapping in the pockets? You, you said that uh, usually uh, a romance crime is, it starts from, from a dating app like Tinder and then moves on to these uh, other platforms that have for communication that, from what I know, most of them are end-to-end -end encrypted. So nobody in theory should be uh, able to tap into into the messages and see what's going on there. So yeah. is there any any uh, discussions around this? Uh, and just adding to, sorry, <laughs> yeah. just adding to his question, I think you also mentioned that the receiving and the sending bank are different. So does that raise questions of data integrity and data sharing between the different banks? Because that's an invasion of privacy as well and then sharing personal data. So how challenging is that? And so um, I went to the Houses of Parliament a couple of weeks back um, where Stop Scams UK were publishing their RUSI report on data sharing. Um, and I was surprised by the number of industry experts, um, the number of sectors that were there supporting the idea of data sharing. Um, like you mentioned, quite rightly so, there is a massive uncomfort around data sharing because of GDPR laws, um, data protection and data privacy, and essentially the customer being able to own their data before it's being shared and giving permission to share it before it's being shared. Um, so a lot of this is is not being done. The short answer to are we even discussing, you know, um, intercepting WhatsApp messages? No. Is that where we're trying to get to? No. Um, I think right now we're probably not doing the bare basics. Um, so I think telco data is probably one that I would look to, um, especially things like SMS, because scammers are not usually WhatsApping the customer. In, in saying, click this link, um, there's a Royal Mail delivery that you've missed, um, can you claim it over here? They've got your mobile number that they've taken from some database online, and they're then sending you an SMS. Are they usually sending you a WhatsApp message? No. Um, so we, I don't think we need to worry about, you know, the end-to-end -end encryption of the WhatsApp messaging. I don't think we, we are even there yet. Um, and thankfully, the scammers haven't yet, you know, crossed that path where now they're they're going into um, WhatsApp as as their prime source of um, 
of victimizing. But I think phone calls is um, is a really big one. I think SMS messages is a really big one. Um, and I think that's why I probably mentioned getting influencers to talk about it more. The industry just widely to talk about it more so that customers become more comfortable in sharing their data. And I think people that are closer to the problem at hand are more likely to be okay with sharing their data as long as they're given some comfort um, and some promise to say your data will only be shared for this legitimate purpose. It is only to save yourself from any upcoming fraud. It's not to share so that we can get some mortgage or marketing campaigns sent to you or the next destination in your holiday because let's be honest, <laughs> none of us like that. Because uh, as you said, most of the scams are happening online and through our phones and yeah. emails and other methods of communication. Uh, are the, are companies like Google, Apple, Microsoft in, in the discussions and do they even think about these uh, frauds that are taking place on basically their, their platforms like on iOS and Android and all the others, Windows and what we are using now? Yeah, um, that's a good question um, and one that I've been asking for a very long time. I think the short answer is is yes. Um, the likes of these big tech companies um, like Google, um, like Microsoft, like Apple um, have already been bought into the discussions um, and in all honesty, I feel like everyone is pitching and trying to do their bit. Um, I think it's more around the regulation and the data protection um, laws um, and the risks associated with data sharing. Um, and when we get to a solution for that, I think the sharing of the data once these risks have been eliminated um, or at least accepted um, isn't going to be the, the wider problem. Um, I think it's all of us trying to get our heads together. Um, so again, like tech companies, you've got your telecommunications company like Vodafone and EE, Virgin. Um, you've also got social media companies like Facebook, um, Twitter, Snap. Um, and it's essentially coming in one place um, and brainstorming some of these solutions. Um, and we're always led to one thing, which is how do we share data across sectors? Number one, at the, at the speed of a transaction taking place. Um, and it's, all, it's also how do we become transparent with our customers as well um, and get their buy-in as well. Um, and it's essentially scalability as well and the regulation that's around these data sharing techniques. Um, so something we're still working on um, and we don't have a solution at the moment, um, although there's a lot of solutions that are being used in, in silos um, and it's not like banks don't have their own you know, fraud prevention solution providers or fraud prevention engines, um, they do. I think it's how do we now take the output of their fraud engines Things like risk indicators, risk scores, um, customer behaviours, um, suspicious behaviours, uh, mule accounts, and then how do we share it across the industry? Um, so then the tracking of those fraudulent funds is becoming more easily detected. Um, and catching the fraud at source, I think, is probably one that we want to concentrate on as well. Because once that fraudulent payment is made, tracking the funds later on, post the fraud, is a lot more difficult. Um, so I think it's more focused, we, we need to stay more focused on how do we have proactive fraud prevention in place. Can you work, walk us through how rule-based systems are put in place and 
uh, how are these uh, then machine learning algorithms uh, using them to detect uh, such uh, weird activities going on? You know, how does this rule-based writing work? How does um, how do machine learning models work? Um, so almost all banks would have a fraud detection engine um, and they'll use a number of suppliers um, to do that. And what happens is this fraud engine has got all of these transactions that are coming in um, from their customers. Um, and it's usually, the power is usually in the sending bank's hand to reject or refer or um, accept a payment. Um, I've not seen many cases of a receiving bank rejecting a payment. And we are more so now looking at that as well. How do we empower re receiving banks to reject a payment? And this is what the Enhanced Fraud Data API will try to do. It will try to give enough information to the receiving bank about the sending customer and vice versa, more information about the sending customer to the receiving bank. Um, because the receiving bank might know more about the account that the funds are about to be deposited in um, than the sending bank knows. And they might say, actually, we don't want this because there's just been today another case of this, this um, account maybe possibly being a mule. Um, so I think we're, if you just imagine a customer journey, the customer submits a payment on the internet bank and says, okay, I want to pay my sister um, £5,000. That um, will then go through um, a default set of rules um, that the bank already has. So very, very simple rules like, does the customer have enough funds in their account? Have they entered their details correctly? Is it who authorizing the person? Is it who, who it, who the person says they are. They, it will then go through, if that's all fine and it's a tick in the box, it will then go through the actual fraud engine. The fraud engine will have, a lot of banks will have a different number of rules. Um, so it will have, like you probably already know, if else statements of rules as well. Um, and bearing in mind that the fraud engine is also retrieving information from a lot of different third parties as well. So you can go to another fraud prevention supplier and get risk scores from them. You can get flags from another company. Uh, you can get alerts from another company. So what they will do is they will, again, have very specific rules to say, is this a new beneficiary? And, and I'm just using examples, by the way, just to give you a notion of what these rules might look like. So it might be, is this, an, is this customer paying a new beneficiary? Have they ever paid this customer before? Um, and if it's, yes, it is a new beneficiary, it will start looking at maybe time of the payment, um, does the customer usually transact on the weekend or a weekday? Is this the average amount or um, transfer amount that they do to any beneficiary? Um, and how long has, has this customer been banking with us? Um, a lot of the time, a good indication of a fraudster account is seeing if it's number one, a new account, but seeing also if they've got any recurring payments, so any direct debits that are set up in the account. Because if you go to think about it, a fraudster just wants to open up the account, do their transfer their fraudulent funds and close their account or make the account like a redundant um, account um, and, and keep it there. They would hardly have commitments to companies um, and direct debits being, being paid out to HMRC or Netflix or British Gas. Um, so it's a good indication of seeing, do they have any recurring direct debit payments? Um, and then they'll have the scoring that's coming in from these third parties. So for example, um, 
their biometric information. And these companies will give them a score of, say, for example, anything above 900 is a high risk payment. Anything between 500 to 900 is a risky payment only. And anything below 500 is a green payment. It's good to go, um, very low risk. So they'll have a lot of different aspects baked within one rule um, with a lot of if or else statements, um, which will then end up with reject, accept um, or refer. And usually what happens in, in rejections and or what we call declines is a message will go out to the customer to say, we have declined your payment. We've got reason to believe that it's um, it might be a fraudster payment your accounts and at the same time usually their accounts will be blocked as well so they won't have any access to any digital means of making another transfer until they call or they visit a branch to say can you please unlock my account either yes that was a force of making an, a payment on behalf of me or it was me making that payment and this is my justification and then their accounts will be unlocked again um, on the referral side it's usually the customer getting a notification so you might have seen their y or n messages um, so it could be did you make this payment of this amount to this customer or to this beneficiary or account ending X um, or to this company? Um, if it was you, please reply with Y. And if it was not, then please reply with N. And if they reply with um, Y or if there's no contact, the fraud agents, they have a telephony or a fraud um, operations team. They will then call the customer back within 24, 48 hours. Different companies have different SLAs to basically talk about that transaction to say, did you make this payment? What was it for? Um, has anybody, you know, asking you to make this payment? Um, we can see it's a new benefit. And they'll, they'll tell the customer a little bit about the, the payment as well. We can see it's a new beneficiary or it's quite a big sum. What are you planning to do with it? And then the customer might say, I'm buying a house, etc. So I think banks right now, this is how their rule based um, fraud engines work. Um, and then, like I mentioned, the score that's coming in is usually um, a machine learning model that's spitting out that score as well. Um, a lot of the times and, and currently as well, especially with my with my knowledge when I was working in, in banks, um, they're increasingly doing proof, proofs of concepts um, with companies um, that are using machine learning models. Um, and even the, the models that we are now looking at, it's, it usually starts off with doing a proof of concept by providing the company with 12 months of customers' transactions. And then them be, being able to spot where the um, fraudulent transactions might have taken place. So it's any of unusual behaviors, or it might be one customer has reported a fraud. Um, so this beneficiary account has already been flagged as a fraudulent payment has been deposited in this account. But then it's all, all, always using um, a network as well. So it's something called graph technology as well to understand how one fraudulent transaction is passed around the network as well. So it might be me paying a fraudster um, being victimized um, in a romance scam, but then it's also seeing within that same bank, how many different of their customers are also paying that fraudulent account. Um, and then that way they can track the funds. It might, what we're trying to get to is assume this is a Barclays account and there are 50 Barclays customers paying this one fraudulent account Obviously, any the 51st customer that's now that's going to be making the payment to the fraudulent account, they will try to refer or decline that payment. Um, and then it's almost if the data sharing was as clean as we've been discussing, 
it'll be really interesting to see where that money from this fraudulent account is being made now to a Santander or a TSB account. Um, and essentially like that, you can almost track where the funds are going. Obviously then if one of these bank accounts make a large purchase on Selfridges for um, a, a, um, a Fendi bag, then it's almost the money's gone. Um, or if they do a cash withdrawal, it's, it's, it becomes harder to track that payment. But um, so this is how the rule engine and the models work. And because now the machine learning models are quite um, are quite developed as well. Usually there was like a six month or a yearly retuning exercise that used to happen, where again you'll send the last year's fraudulent transactions to to the um, to the vendors. They'll again retune their algorithms, um, and essentially the scores will be what they need to be. Um, and keeping up with the trends and the volatility of the force of behavior. But now the, the models are self-tuning and they're self-learning. So if you, if you imagine like a circular loop, as long as there's a loop of customers making transactions, that those transactions and the fraudulent tags being shared with the machine learning models, the models can be self-retuned and essentially have a score coming back to and being fed into um, the fraud engines which then again are, are better at stopping um, or accepting a payment. And, and we keep talking about stopping a payment, but it can also be used as an opposite because, because it can also be used to whitelist. Um, what we don't want and what banks don't want is to stop um, genuine payments. We don't want our complaints you know, to hit off the roof um, on behalf of a bank. So what we can do is very common payments, we can also whitelist them. Um, and, and companies do do that. If they know, you know, a solicitor has been validated, a lawyer, um, HMRC, any government institutions, um, any bill payments, so your Sky bills, your Netflix bills. If we definitely know that this sort of an account number belongs to this val validated company, we can whitelist those payments. Um, so if we go to think about it, we can then almost stay more focused on stopping only the fraudulent um, transactions as opposed to interfering and um, stopping the genuine um, transactions as well. It seems like um, the trend that, that our conversation goes goes by is that um, who owns and who has access to the data is going to be uh, successful in, in solving these uh, problems and these issues. But then how do we try to stop those big companies not uh, uh, keeping the, the data only for themselves, for their own profits, for their own shareholders? Are there any, are you aware of any regulators or regulations that are uh, tried or are fought on to be placed? So we've got two main regulators um, that we work with, um, and they're your, I would say, innovative um, regulators that are genuinely trying to do the best for the economy, um, for the customers and for the industry. Um, and they're almost trying to get all of the sectors together. Um, so we've got your um, FCA, so your Financial Conduct Authority, you've got PSI, your Payment Systems Regulator, um, and they are there to essentially govern, but also give a trigger to the companies to say, we will back you, we, we are more than willing to govern um, the solutions that you come up with. 
um, and we need to do something right now because we're already late. We've already lost out on so many, so many billions of um, of funds um, to these fraudsters. And I think we keep saying, you know, APP scams is on the rise since COVID. But if we go to see APP scam figures over the last four years, it's been it's been increasing. So yes, post COVID and post people's moves to digital forms of making payments, it's increased even more. But we do have a steady rise in the last four years. Um, so I think with the regulators, it's not so much do we have their backing, we do. I think it's more around how do we get customers to agree? Um, how do we you know, prove the legitimacy of the data um, and using this data for fraud prevention? Um, and it's almost how do we also um, at speed send around this data to all of the different organizations that might be involved from the source of, of that fraud starting um, to already being committed to then the reinvestment as well? Because even when the fraudster is now trying to get into a victim's head or build a relationship with a victim. It could be anything between a week to six months before they attack. So it becomes really hard to, to identify which cases are genuine and which cases are fraudulent. Um, so I think from a regulation perspective, it's all about seeing how do we how do we scale these this data sharing um, um, mindset um how do we regulate as well because of all these um data protection and um, data privacy rules that are in place as well um and how do we do it at the speed because we're talking about real-time payments right now so how do we really work closely with your tech providers as well um i don't know if blockchain technology was was one of the questions as well because it's it's got you know um, the enhanced security um, within it, um, and it's essentially it's going to be great to to fight fraud um, in the network, um, and I think it it also allows the ability to share the data um, in a fast and very secured manner. But I think there's a lot of questions as well, like with any new technology. I think the security around blockchain stems from how the technology actually works. Um, and I think one of the one of the key concerns that I, I, I for one have is around the security around it or the data leakage or data breaches if there's a hack or there's a man in the middle attack on any one of these nodes. Because if we think about the blockchain, if you have access to one node, you could have access to the entire chain. Um, so it could be it could be less beneficial than than what the, the technology um, seems to think right now. Um, and again, I think another problem is scalability with blockchain technology as well, because we're not using it for this for this purpose at the moment. Um, and it's also there's no one to regulate right now that that type of technology. So I think it's I'm not saying it's it shouldn't be used or it's not a good a good technology to use. I think it's just too soon. Um, to start using um, a new technology that's not being regulated at the moment, um, but definitely something that's that's there in the roadmap um, to come into play later on. For someone like our audience, uh, our people that are coming to events that are interested in data science, uh, how do you think they can breach into this uh, this industry, or and also 
um, what tools or techniques they should study or have a prior knowledge before trying to uh, work for such a company as pay.uk? Yeah, um, absolutely. So good question. Um, and, and there's a few things. So I think pay.uk is, um, and this is one of the reasons why I first agreed to do um, a podcast. For <laughs> It's um, we need expertise um, and we need um, people that are experts in machine learning um, that have a keen interest in fraud prevention. I think I probably mentioned the fraud function in pay.uk is pretty new. Um, so I've got a very small team of about five to eight people that are working on various different things. Um, but we would love to have um, people from universities um, that have got a keen interest in you know, fraud detection and prevention. Um, and also technical experts as well, um, because I think one of the questions that we had covered before is what type of persona do these forces have? Um, and they could be anybody. They could be somebody looking for quick cash or they can be really organized um, hackers um, and criminals out there that have the blessing of both where they're really good at coding and hacking. Um, and they also have a knack to gain people's trust as well. Um, so I think some of the things that we, we kind of look for and anybody that's, you know, um, into fraud prevention or just generally into fraud and financial crime um, is also it's always good to, you know, understand how machine learning at the moment is helping fraud prevention um, throughout the sectors. It's also good to have some insight um, and some some reads about, you know, biometrics, um, device, fingerprinting. Um, geolocation, all of these velocity checks, um, fraud blacklists, and then like we mentioned, whitelists. Um, it's how, how do these tools and techniques come into play when we talk about fraud prevention? Um, and technology is ever evolving. Um, so we can never say, you know, we are doing the best we can because we're not. We're only doing the best we can at the moment. But at the end of the day, I don't think there's even one organization that can say we're using absolutely all technology that's there available um, for the purpose of fraud prevention because they, they simply can't. Either they don't have the funds to do it or they don't have the resources to do it. They might not have the expertise to do it. Um, and I think we're in a good spot in um, pay.uk because, like I mentioned, we don't have the loss lines. We're not held accountable for the fraud losses because we don't have the power to stop the payments. We're only doing as we're told by the banks. Um, but what we can do and what we are currently trying to do is have solutions ready for the banks to implement um, so that they don't have to go through the whirlwind of going through a fraud taking place, a loss, a reinvestment, um, because it takes a lot of money. Um, even for solutions, it takes a lot of money. So it'd be really good to have people like um, like yourselves from, from university that have a really good interest um, and have some knowledge also about how the fraud takes place um, and it doesn't take much to to understand because like I said it's it's things that you could even talk to about your your friends and your family they've probably been been defrauded at some point um, there's actually a really interesting story I wanted to come I'm really conscious of time but I'll, I'll quickly cover it because it happened to me uh, a week ago now um, no two weeks ago um, so um, after work I went to a, a friend's house um, and unfortunately my car got stolen um so obviously 
automatically you're like, how does stealing and fraud, how does it coincide with each other? What does it have to do with financial theft? Um, so I think stealing is obviously taking um, or moving other people's property, um, whereas the fraud is some intention to gain a benefit um, by, by financial means or being dishonest. Um, and I found it really interesting because I had the key. So my car's got, my car had wireless entry um, and keyless entry. So I was just questioning how, how do the thieves get into the car when I've got the keys? Um, and obviously there was a whole, you know, police report and um, raising awareness to my leasing company and then um, the tracking company. So the car had um, a Thatcham approved tracker. So we could see where the car's going. Um, but I think the question was, how did the how did thieves actually get in the car? And it's really interesting because obviously you guys being from a machine learning, from a data background, it was super interesting to understand how the thieves are really good in not only hacking systems and um, stealing data, but it's also how do they hack real life objects to steal them. So your the key fob that I use, and because it's keyless entry, it just needs to be within the rearm of the car to then open oh, the car. Yeah. But, but I was but I wasn't there. I was on the second floor and. The, I wasn't even on the road that the car was parked in. So they can use something called signal relaying. And I was told this by the insurance company later on, where your smartphones and your fobs um, can emit a short range um, friendly radial signal. So if the car would have been just downstairs or within a few meters of, of me, um, they could easily um, widen that signal um, and the doors can be unlocked. And then once inside, they essentially have a blank fob and that can be programmed to work with, with the car by accessing the car's computer port. Um, so it's a process that takes less than a few minutes. The thing that I, I think that actually happened with my car is something called key programming, where they come with a blank fob to start off with. Um, and they, they're computer hackers, and they're really good at what they do. Um, and they develop a device that plugs into the port of the, of the car. It boots up the vehicle's um, software, and then it programs the blank fob that they have to think that it's already authorized with the real fob and hence it opens the door of the car. Obviously if the car thinks that the real fob is inside the car it will automatically start up and they can drive away with it as if they they are the, the legal owners of the car. And then so so that type of theft is, is interesting from a data perspective and data theft perspective um, from a hacking perspective. Obviously everything I had was in that car so um, my wallet was in the car, all my debit cards, all my credit cards, my driving license. So they've got a whole plethora of data now at their fingertips. They can conduct identity theft, credit card theft. Um, they can use my, my debit cards and my credit cards to go inside Harrods and get really expensive items. Um, so I had a few, I had a few, um, I wasn't as fast as they were in swiping my card and reporting it lost and stolen. Um, so I had a few cases, thankfully not big amounts, um, but it, I think it just goes to show like it's, it's not just the APP scams and authorised fish payment. Um, I wasn't tricked into making that payment, um, but there's forces of, of all different notions um, and personas and, and they're willing to go through any lengths to get access to your personal items, your things, regardless of how big or how small the item is. Um, and it's, it's things like that. I mean, 
the theft of having the wallet at their disposal, they have access now to very simple things, date of birth, address, all of that thing is there in my, in my driving license. So it's, it's a bit um, scary how much they can use that data now. They can open, a, open up a credit card um, and then they can use either swim swap or change the address last minute to get the passcode sent to another address or wherever they are. Um, so it's just an interesting case that I had um, that I like mentioning for the past two weeks because I've been doing a lot of research post that event. But it's but it is interesting um, while we're talking about data, you know, a lot of things that we need to be wary of, um, and it's data is just becoming a good thing and a bad thing. Um, having data at you know the fingertips can can cause a whole load of issues, um, especially when it comes to things like financial and fraudulent crime. But I think that was our time for today. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, coming. Like uh, it was a pleasure to have you, Homer, on on board to tune in uh, for our podcast. Uh, this was fighting fraud. Uh, it's uh, an episode within our database podcast. Obviously, fraud is going to be ever evolving. Technology is going to be ever evolving. The more people that we can get on this journey with us, the better it will be for us. So, from a pay.uk perspective. If we want anyone to come in and shadow or um, meet some of the team face to face, I'm more than happy to get that organized. The company is fairly small. Um, it's not like the large big banks that I'm, that I'm used to, to working with. Um, we're only about 350 people um, large and we've only got one office in, in London. Um, so I'm more than happy to welcome people that are interested in coming along and getting to know what we do. Um, getting to meet some of the team members um, and putting their ideas across as well. I think that would be fab because you never know a small idea can can get you quite far that's exactly how google maps um came about where google employees were asked to take half an hour of of their of their day in a week to just think about something and take some time to themselves um and they thought about having a map that they can just search your address over and it shows quickly um what the location they're searching for and directions to a location and from a location so you never know where these um, really cool ideas can come from. So I hope it's been useful and I've had a really great time speaking to both of you, um, but I'm even more interested for people to listen to this and understand and you know give feedback on what they think um, and where they think the solutions should be going um, because we never know, expert can be lying in any one of us. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mara. Thank you for being so generous with your time with us. Thank you. Absolutely not. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Speak soon. Have a nice day. Bye. 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 Bye.